Thank you. Thank you. This is Immerse, the podcast in Brooklyn. We are delighted to have you join us. Immerse is produced by Charlie Morrow, Sean McCann, and Bart Plantinga for Morrow Sound, Vermont, and Helsinki, and Recital Edition, Los Angeles. Here we go. Okay, so this is Charlie Morrow for Immerse. I'm Charlie Morrow, and today I'm pleased to talk with my longtime friend and co-conspirator of public events, Chris Wangro. We met through the New York City Department of Parks, where he just had been hired as events coordinator. My colleagues and I in the New Wilderness Foundation were producing one of our summer solstice celebrations in New York's Central Park. Chris, at the time, the early 80s, had just returned from working in Europe with Henry Cow. We've continued to the present to make things happen. Chris, he started out as the ringmaster of a one-man circus and rose to become the Tsar of special events for the city of New York in the 1980s. These days, he works as a creative strategist and activist who pursues the improved design of public space, employing placemaking, community-building strategies that are enhanced by his passion for bringing people together in joyful, dynamic, and unexpected ways all across the globe. Chris is renowned for his masterful designs of public space and has produced countless prestigious events for audiences from intimate ones to massive ones, including festivals, cultural programs, presidential summits, NASCAR rallies, papal visits, Dolly Parton concerts, pachyderm parades, and art festivals worldwide. The one we did together was broadcast internationally. Nice to have you with us today, Chris. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the greatest show on earth! So, hey man, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. What I'm doing is uh, I'm writing a text on immersive experience, and clearly uh, uh, one of the traditional and contemporary forms of immersive experiences is uh, circus and events. The whole idea has been to totally engage people. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think one of the things that I always find funny about this is you know, people talk about sort of immersive experience and interactive experience as if it's like just was invented. What people have been doing forever. So you know, the terminology changes, some of the tools change, but the game remains the same. Absolutely. Well, that's why I wanted to talk to you about about what you do because you've bridged. You know, you've started out as a one-man circus. You have done performance. You've done music, and you've done large events. You've done electronic events. We've done events that had um, you know conceptual bases. We've done things that were had broadcasts links so they became very technical and you know i just want to talk basically about you know the immersive stuff that that you do and that we have done together in a way this discussion is a description about our mutual interest in um in engaging people with with sound 
and and media and themes and uh, and so forth. As you say, it's the uh, it's it's ancient, but it, it always has to be done in the present. <laughs> well, I'll ask you some questions. Um, I I think we're already already getting material. Uh, our conversation has already been in the subject, and we both agree that this is an ancient thing, but it comes brought us right brought us together. <laughs> and I wondered wondered what you think are the raw elements of a good of, of say a good circus. Just to start out with, I mean, what what makes that circus happen when you did it uh, as a one you know one ring circus? I mean, how did you figure out your package and and make that work? I, mean, I think there's you know there's, when I think of the raw elements, I'm trying to think of what, what like in what way it's raw elements. I mean, you can look at a list of raw elements as being things such as humor, music, spectacle, color. That that's one list of raw elements. But you could also look at another list of raw elements that might be Crowns, acrobatics, animals, you know, those things that sort of signify circus and separate it from some other forms. You know, I think for me and the way I think about and thought about circus, it's a little bit of both. Uh, you know, when I was doing circus, I sort of came to it twice, Charles. You know, I was totally into magic and circus as a, as a, like a junior high and high school kid. You know, I was for sure the nerdy 14-year-old doing magic tricks for for 10-year-olds. Um, you know, I did you know play poker in, in school with a bunch of friends of mine who were also really into card sharping, and we all would try and you know do do magic for each other. And it was completely above board and part of the game to to deal seconds and you know and, and from the bottom of the deck. It was it was sort of part of what we thought was cool. Um, I thought circus was really cool, and I met someone who. Uh, I was doing magic shows professionally, as it were, as a kid, and then I met someone who was a cl- had been a clown in Ringling, and he started teaching me clowning, and I developed this very sort of you know, clown magician character, and that was a, was a very big part of my of my youth. Um, I then got really into the sort of happenings and, and avant-garde performance stuff, and that was going on. You know, this was mid seventies, so you know that. That was all around me, and from there I sort of moved away from circus, did all sorts of sort of so-called experimental kind of performance work um, and music, as you know. And then, you know, I kind of got sick of the people that I was working with in Europe, and particularly because the political work that we were doing it was all sort of very political and social, socially motivated, but it was very heavy-handed. It was very sort of our performances and our music was very like. Hey, I'm going to hit you over the head. Wake up, motherfucker! And I felt that just wasn't a way to get to the audience. And so I, one thing led to another, and I started the circus. I felt I went back to the circus and started my show, which I felt was, hey, this is a perfect way. This is a perfectly populous kind of uh, tradition in which we can include social and political messaging, but do it in a way that I can talk to people who are um, way outside of of my political norm and my social beliefs and yet the list of things that we mentioned before the spectacle the color the humor the clowns the animals the music form a bridge between us and them and so that was a big that was a sort of the big uh, motivating factor for, for me starting a show and i will say too that the the iconic elements of the circus for instance, an acrobat or a strong man, lend themselves beautifully to become metaphors. So that I think one of the beauties of the circus in its in its heyday of the Great American Circus is you might see 
things that you've never seen before, such as a bunch of acrobats standing five Hulk, five tall, one on top of another. That set new goals and new ideas in your head, showed you new ways, new things that were possible. The circus was exciting because it showed possibility. It inspired awe and wonder. We wanted to use that same language to inspire awe and wonder and show possibilities, but of a different nature. And that the strong man or the acrobat that was climbing up a tower in our circus climbed up a tower of books. This was a perfect metaphor for the importance of reading and, and, and education. Um, those types of things went across the board in terms of our, our creating what our circus was like. That's marvelous. Um, in a way, it suggests something too that the uh, technology uh, and the props followed from the idea but within the envelope of, of what it is that circus is. That's what I'm getting, that you have a, a genre which works, and, and then you work within it, but then the details of it are shaped to how, however you're making a piece. And that's... that's right. and, the, and, the, and the genre, in this case, was completely inspiring. You know, it's, like, it's like being taken by the idea of, of creating music for a marching band. But the marching band genre is like, hey, this is fun, this is great, I can create a marching band, that would be wonderful. And then the tropes of, and the, the standards within that genre, be it, you know, three or four time or whatever it is, become the motivator for you to discover new things um, and new ways of communicating. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for laying all that, that down. Because uh, one of the things uh, I'd be comparing in my study here um, of, of immerse, immersive entertainment, you know, it's, it's like virtual reality. You know, my friend Jaron Lanyard's material will be in the same book with us and, uh, and you know his own revelations about creating worlds technologically and then work then working with them it's, it's a quite different matter than starting out with um, the circus you know because he's there yeah, I mean, the thing, the thing that I find, you know and i know Jaron for years as well and it's all cool everything he's done and accomplished you know i feel like with the, the, the huge difference between something like the vr world and the circus world is our world was, and in the world that I've played in, you know, I'm not a VR guy, um, is very real. It is the opposite of virtual reality. It is reality, reality. One of the, you know, one of the things that's important about seeing a circus live is that there is somebody there flying above you, and you know that that person could crash and burn. There is a, there is a tiger in that cage. That is not a tiger on the two-inch screen or on a, or on a on a visor that makes you feel like it's real. That tiger could kill that guy. That tiger could get out of that cage. You can smell it. You can feel it. When that tiger roars, man, you're like, whoa, that's some serious shit, right? And yes. I, I have yet to feel that that, that reality experience um, translates into VR. You know, as you know, I spent a lot of years producing concerts. When the concert is for you know, 5,000 or 500,000, you cannot duplicate the experience of being surrounded by thousands of people dancing together in VR. You can get a cool experience in VR, but it's not the same. Only in my contention, others may not agree. But, you know, I, and, and as much as I, I'm fascinated by the, the technological equivalence of reality experience, I, I can cite examples of things that are losses um, by those, but the for virtual experiences and technological experiences replacing the real ones. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm thinking by, you know, um, kind of by extension. Um, there's been a number, a number of, uh, of events 
that I've been involved with and friends of mine have done that were involved immersion in water. Max Newhouse had a, a water whistle that he did at NYU in a swimming pool. I did the concert for fish. Um, there's, there's a Finnish band that performs entirely underwater and a Danish theater group. And uh, I keep on thinking this, in, in a way, the milieu is, is very, very important. You know, the, the medium is the message in this case. <laughs> Well, the, you know, the medium is, you know, like many things, the medium allows you to do things or inspires you to do things. I mean, even, you know, your conch shell orchestra, the music that you created with the conch shell leads you to not only new sounds, but new new people to collaborate with and new new places to perform and new meetings from those performances. I mean, it, it all comes together in a way that... Uh, you know, it, it wouldn't. Now, I'm sure that's true of the virtual world. The idea that you might be able to create a virtual uh, gathering place for people from around the world to meet, merge, and mingle, and perhaps hear music together. That's all cool. That, that's great. But it is, it is a very different thing. It really is. And, um, but I think we've got, you, you've put your finger on it. And um, I think what has been most meaningful has been if there is a reality element to it. I think otherwise, uh, it reminds me of something my, my father once said. Uh, you may recall that both of my parents were shrinks. <laughs> and my father was talking about the difference, um, you know, between paranoia and fear. <laughs> he says, uh, when you're paranoid, you, you're imagining that there might be a tiger in the room. <laughs> and he says, with fear, there is a tiger in the room. That's right. And I mean, not to get us off on a tangent, because I think there are more interesting things and more relevant things to talk about. But, you know, one of the conversations I've had over and over again with people is about elephants in the circus and animals in the circus in general, but elephants being the elephant in the room. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that think, yeah, it is, great. It is fantastic that, you know, elephants are being phased out of the American circus. You know, I consider it a tremendous loss. You know, I, for me, the importance of the audience, kids in particular, being able to look into an elephant's eye, to be able to stand there, like I did at the theater, I'm sure you did. Yes. Look up and go like, whoa, not only is this animal big, but this animal has soul. They look in that eye, right? It's feel the animal, right? Yes. And yeah, I understand that we should be nice to our animals and we should take care of our animals and, you know, and most of the circuses that I ever was in and on around, the animals were utterly babied because, of course, they're somebody's livelihood and they cost a lot of money. Um, so uh, to me, it's like, yeah, I, mean, I get it. We should take care of the animals. But not having that animal real, live, and in person in, in, in a space shared by humans is a real loss. And it's a real loss to our ability to preserve those animals because without seeing them for real, how can you really even begin to treasure them and understand them? Anyway, that's a tangent. That's a tangent. <laughs> uh, we're, probably better, we're probably better off focusing on other things. So keep us on track. I dare you. Okay, well, uh, thank you. Uh, I think that one of the uh, important reality part, parts of all of this is the activating of space and awareness of time. And the feeling, time, place, and space are, are important ingredients. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Feeling, time, place, and space. Well, I mean, from an audience perspective? Yes. Or the presenting perspective? Well, uh, try, try audience first, and it comes back to you as a presenter then. You know, I'm 
going to start with the presenter side. Okay. Me. I was just recently, as a presenter, for me, most of my life has been creating events of one kind or another in unusual spaces. I mean, I've certainly worked in hundreds of theaters around the world, but, you know, the, what really made me, me, what really made my so-called career was the ability to create performances and the spectacle in places as, you know, disparate as, uh, you know, whatever, as disparate as some giant field outside uh, a seminary or, uh, or the top of Brooklyn Bridge. You know, it's, it's, it's using unusual spaces as your campus. And just recently, you know, I was in, uh, I was in Charlotte, uh, working with the director of the Arts Center down there. Uh, and they, they're putting on a festival. And he was walking me around downtown Charlotte, showing me the various spaces that they use and how they've used them in the past. And so I had that momentary rush, which I think is exactly what you're talking about, standing in the space and looking around. This is a new this is a place I've never been to before in, in the middle of the downtown district. You know, he's saying, well, we close up the street here, and we put the stage there, and we have the lights and here. And for me to begin to feel that space, as I have so many times before, to look at it and think, right, I wouldn't do it that way. I'm going to put the stage here. I might think about putting this in the round. Oh, I see that there's a flat-top roof that's, that's a story and a half up. We could actually put a band there or a projection screen there. And I'll look, turn around here. There's a really interesting place that you could actually put a second stage or a second performance area and begin to really understand the space and how the dynamics of that space can become can be, can be brought to life to create a performance uh, you know I think there's a real excitement to that uh, when, when you when you do it and do it right you know I, I mentioned my friend Michael Lang Bruce Woodstock and he and I did a bunch of work together and Michael's been great at that and we, Michael and I have gone to some pretty wacky places you know including you know, Ramallah and others, where we've gone to look at spaces where festivals might occur. And, and Michael's very keyed into finding space that makes for a wonderful event site, an event, yeah, I guess an event site that nurtures the, the artists and the audience. From an audience perspective, uh, I think that, you know, I always say to people I'm working with, even if you're doing something as traditional, if you will, as a concert, an outdoor festival like a setting like Central Park or something, the theater begins as people walk in the door, right? The transformation of that space and the transformation of their everyday experience happens as soon as people arrive. And you have to address the thing that way. The show doesn't start when the show starts. The show starts when people get there. And the show doesn't end until they've actually left your venue. And so there's all kinds of things you can do to bring that to life and make it exciting. I mean, in a, in a small and simple example, you know, I used to run a concert series in Bryant Park at, at Castle Clinton. People would stand online for hours to get tickets because they were free tickets. We would hire local buskers and street musicians, sometimes some semi-famous people we would get to do it, and just perform for people online. As soon as they got there, the experience was rich, was fun, it was different, it was outside of where every day. But, you know, we've done all kinds of things. In the circus, going back to that example, um, it's traditional to do something called a walk-around. People get to the circus. Of course, traditionally, it's a tent, and it smells different, it looks different, there's all sorts of stuff going on. It, you are literally entering a different world. But, you know, we used to walk around. There was a, a great guy, the science teacher with his day gig, and he had all these tremendous snakes. 
he's a tightrope walker and it's with us. We will walk around, he plays slacks, I play bass clarinet. We walk around with these giant, massive, disgusting snakes around our necks. And we'd be doing, you know, free improv horn solos through the audience, like boas around our necks. That was like, right away, that changes everything for people who are in the audience. That's fabulous. It's absolutely true because I mean, like some of the people I'm going to be including this discussion of are architects who will be talking about what it means to mm-hmm. site a building, which goes right back to the combination of sensibility to, to site a grotto for a, a ritual or whatever. So I, this is the that's you, you've gotten into the core core material. As you know, I'm now working with architects and urban designers and landscape architects on the development of public space. And uh, and I you know I say the same thing to those folks is you know this is all about the transformation of everyday experience. People walk in the door. And they walk onto our property. How do we make them feel like they are in a different world? And, and what does that world signify? You know, or, or or broadcast to them? I mean, you know, classically, you know, there are parks that make people feel like they've entered an urban oasis. You know, uh, they walk in and it's green and it's quiet and there are benches and there's the tree canopy and that's one thing. Or there are parks that feel like they're really fun. You walk in and there's a playground and there's a band playing and there's baseball or whatever it is. You know, those are two opposite uh, ends of the spectrum, but it shows the different types of places that you can create, and everything feeds into that. You know, I entered this field of uh, programming of parks and strategizing parks from a programmatic perspective. But what's happened is, at least I've become, when I say programmatic, I mean programmatic in terms of what types of events might you do there, what types of public art might you do there, right? But now it's much more broad. And it's come to include things like what kind of furniture would you put in the park? What kind of paths would you put in? What would the overall design and shape be? Because all of that broadcasts the kind of experience that you're creating. I guess you could say a park is an ultimate example of an immersive environment. Yeah, that's beautifully put. I mean, um, you were in Central Park uh, for the beginning of uh, the time when I met you and when you follow Olmsted and read about the way he started with making parks. I mean, you must know the history of, you know, that he had shepherds in, in you know, in Brooklyn with, and so forth. So he was a bit of a, a P.T. Barnum, uh, but of park making. And uh, he was... Uh, Absolutely. He certainly, certainly knew how to get work, too, I tell you. Incredible how much work he accomplished in his life. Truly impressive. How much of it is beautiful. Yeah, he's a very positive character compared to Barnum. (laughs) You know, I think Barnum gets a bad rap. Barnum helped invent showbiz uh, as we know it. And he also helped, I'm just telling you something you know, but on record, on tape, he not only helped invent showbiz, he helped invent showmanship and, you know, what was turned into PR and advertising. He was genius. Maybe it was ingenious. He had just the natural act for it. And he was also a very active and engaged citizen. Um, not that I agree with all his policies. You know, he was very into temperance, for instance. But, you know, I read numerous books about Barnum, and the, the, most, the most enlightening is his, uh, the book that collected his correspondence. And, and one of those I'll never forget was you know, he wrote in a letter to one of his friends, the true purpose of culture is to be, to, to get people to be as unselfish as possible. And I thought, that was really great. That was really interesting. 
I think these are all very important points. I think you've covered the main thing of uh, the main part of um, of what I'd wanted to hear from you, because I mean, I think that you've come down to um, uh, the point that uh, through performance, through sighting in a location, through what you create for people, you then transform time, place, and all the all is then. <laughs> Uh, in in the palm of your hand, hand as a designer, maybe more permanently if it is a if what you're doing is arranging a park space or and so forth. But I I think that the other thing that, that you're not mentioning, I'm not saying you're not considering it, but the other thing you're not mentioning, which the, one has to take into account in their their creation of an event as well as in the creation of a public space, is that ultimately you are building community. And that's part of the joy of it. Part of the joy of going to a great concert where everyone is dancing together is you will always be part of that community. And it doesn't matter whether there are 50 people together for a birthday party or there's half a million people together for a concert. Once you've shared that experience with everybody, you have that basis. And if it's a good experience, which frankly most events are, that you've created a bond and broken down some walls that, that exist between people. Uh, or maybe even maybe you haven't even broken down walls, but you have created the bond. And creating the bond is just super important, especially in a world like we live in now, where people are very busy building walls. You know, gives us an opportunity to be the bridge builders. Those are magnificent thoughts. I I totally agree. I mean, um, you know, we come from the same bedrock. The reason I was doing events was to bring out, uh, you know, experimental music into public spaces so that people could experience it and and happen upon it or have it be part of what brought them together. That's why all of the, you know, I never charged for the events that I did or the um, and and I would break down the, for the circus we did. <laughs> the same. We are definitely cut from the same cloth. Not the most self-sustainable model, but yeah, you can all probably relate to this. And it's interesting about experimental music and, and and such. I was listening utterly by chance to an interview by Fred Frith, of Fred Frith. And someone asked him about the difference between performing in traditional spaces versus performing in non-traditional spaces and performing written music versus improvised music. You know, he was saying, you know, if you are in a traditional space and you're playing written music, you generally have an idea before you go into that space what you want that music to feel, to, to sound like and maybe to feel like. And you are struggling with that space that someone else has preconceived to have a certain kind of sound profile and experience profile. Uh, you're struggling with that space uh, the whole time to try and get as close to your your notion of what it should be as possible. But going into a new space, especially playing improvised music, it is all about it is it is a, a moment of discovery the entire the entire time. The key to improv being being completely in the moment and trying to discover and make the, and to make the most interesting or the best or the most whatever sound experience as you can and i think that is both for audience artist and audience i think if you go to carnegie hall to hear x y and z play you have a certain conception of what it's supposed to be if you walk into the uh, the bowels of uh, the brooklyn bridge tunnel system to hear charlie morrow and his orchestra play 
and you know a lot of it's going to be improvised, you're there for the ride, right? You are there to experience it moment by moment and see what, what it is. And it's a very different type of experience than going to hear something you know in a place you know. Yeah, brilliant. That's absolutely the motivation. Um, in order to have that feeling and have that feeling together, with your performers and with your audience, and that the um... right, it, it unites it unite your audience and your performer in a way that perhaps much written music doesn't. Not that written music can't, but it's it's a different way. Yeah, uh, very definitely so. You know, it could be. You, you, I guess you could say that. You know, if you if you go to a, if you go to a concert and you know you're going to go see your favorite band and your favorite band launches into their big hit and everybody you know puts their phone above their head or their light or they wave it back and forth and everybody sings along, you know, and you've been waiting for that moment to happen and you're at the garden and it's friggin' awesome. And that's great. You, you're getting this incredible shared experience and you're getting, you're getting exactly what you wanted, exactly what you paid for and expected. And that's cool. There's nothing wrong with it. But it's a very different kind of thing than going in with no real notion of what's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Well, also impromptu events, unannounced events uh, pre pre present themselves as an interesting area. I mean, I think you, we both of us known bands and been part of groups that have done the unexpected. Could you speak a little about unexpected, impromptu, unexpected uh, guerrilla events? Yeah, I mean, that, that is, as you say, I'm smiling because I think it's very true. That's really, it's really taking people to a place they, they, they didn't expect. And I think you know how it is you'll find again both artists that are particularly gifted or, or, or clever about how they do this and audiences that are particularly willing or unwilling you know i think that you as a as a, pop, as a, as a guerrilla performer can completely shake people up and sometimes people go along for the ride and they enjoy it they'll participate in some ways and they'll be incredibly let's say appreciative joyful about your disruption of their everyday. I shouldn't even just say disruption, I'll go back to that word transformation of their everyday. And that's really fun. And then you get the people who put up their walls, who who are defensive or of their everyday. Like, don't mess with me, right? You can't, don't, don't do this here, please. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm shopping, I'm, I'm, I'm doing whatever it is I'm doing in this location. You know, what are you doing here, you wacky performer? Yeah, it's it's they it's like they're, they're they can't let go of their everyday and they don't want to. I guess they're entitled. And again, I think one of the reasons I went from a sort of hard edge street performer avant garde guerrilla theater kind of thing that I was doing in the early eighties or the late seventies to more of a circus kind of clowns and jesters and we're playing happy music kind of dies is because it was easier to break down the wall. It was easier to reach the people that didn't want their everyday left with. It was easier to, to, to talk to those people and to have them at least meet you halfway and hear what you had to say if you could do it in a, within the guise of an art form. I find that it's a parallel to um, something else that you do, which is very interesting for me, There, where you have made musical instruments and suddenly from raw materials there is an expressive device yeah well you know I, I i like making stuff and i like instruments so it's natural that i would do that i you know i love it and i have a lot of friends who are, are really really talented gifted and skilled instrument makers at this point 
So I feel like I don't, I don't even get to, I don't even get to touch their home. I don't get to talk about this. But as a, it's almost like doodling what I do in comparison. But as a doodler, you know, it's great fun, and it's great fun to bring materials to life and to explore what you can, what you can do and what you can make with them. You know, and I think if you incorporate those types of materials and those types of instruments and those types of things that you can make into performances, there's a certain kind of delight in that for the audience because they see it too. It's sort of it's it's that thing where you say, oh, I, I get it. You could take this old bicycle wheel that I thought was trash and combine it with this whatever, with this broom handle, and somehow make great music out of those two things. That's really fun. I love that. It's all friendly, and it's a lot more approachable than you know an oboe. Where if you're not familiar with an oboe, and you look at it, you say, "What is? What is? What is that? How do I play that? What is that?" Most people you talk to, Charlie, you know this. Most people you talk to. Even people who listen to music a lot could not listen to a recording and say, "Oh, that's an oboe. Oh, that's a trombone. Oh, that's an alto sax." So go. If, if you don't, if you don't put hands on and spend the time, you know, really exploring the stuff, you, you just don't know. You, you know, my mentor is a guy named Jerry Rothenberg, a poet who's uh, brought me into his life uh, where he spent a lot of time with the Seneca Indians and a lot of tribal people. I spent years learning about rituals. And one of the one of my favorite rituals is it concerns the longhouse tradition of the Seneca people where everybody shows up. Uh, to the longhouse, which is basically the, cer- the ceremonial joint. And uh, a, a musician, by the way, uh, in that tribe has to know all the right songs for the right days and the right functions and so forth. So he's, it's a huge thing about memory and uh, having that passed down to them from their their fathers and grandfathers and, um, you know, it making a recognizable Seneca culture. And then what they do is they make a soup for several of these, at some of their major events, and everybody gets some of the soup and they take it home with them. And that soup then becomes part of the, the afterlife of that event. And, and do they, they cook the soup at the event? Yes, that's it. The soup is, making the soup is part of the event. I mean, it's, it is a calm, it's sort of like a metaphor made real. It's like the metaphor comes alive. It is, you know, what we do when we make an event is you're, you're making soup and everybody takes a bit of it home and it lives on with that. As, as it is, in fact, with our lives. We, we live and people meet us and we go away and people carry bits and pieces of, of us forward. I, I love the, the making soup. You know, it reminds me a little bit of the, the bread and circus guys who, um, bread and puppet made bread at most of their performances so everyone could, could break bread together take a bit home yeah that's for sure well i think that you've covered what what i've you know the full the full arc here because uh i would re- remind you that when we first met each other we walked the site of a solstice performance uh, that I was going to do for, uh, in Central Park. And we both had this sense of how to cite everything on a site and whether a site was appropriate and how the sun would be seen and so forth in Manhattan Hinge. And I, I think that we've covered this full range that, that reflects our own relationship because we've walked sites, we've done events, we've um, I've provided technical services to more organized events you've built instruments we've jammed together we've uh the range of things we've done it's it's, it's just wonderful yes let's i think i think there's long lives of doing this kind of work uh i think the other thing that's interesting about you and me 
dare I say it, is that we've remained independent. And I will say that since I started, and even in the commercial world of event producing, producing for whether it's municipalities or, or arts organizations or, or corporate organizations, you know, I've always worked as an independent. And that is, at least in our corner of the universe, you know, in, in, in the USA, in New York, in 2019, it is increasingly uh, difficult, if not nigh on impossible, to be an independent. That all of this work is being done outside of artistic circles, right? outside of artists who are creating events. All the other sort of event producing work is being done by people who are connected to some kind of company. And uh, I feel that's a loss because there's a sort of, look, I said there's an art to what we do. There's a science and there's an art and we combine the two. And the art of what we do is less emphasized within the corporate and company structure. Well, I, I, I totally agree with you, and I think you're making an excellent point. I'd, I'd like to, uh, maybe from this conversation, think of some things that we might be able to do together by telling you about some of my new work. I've gone from making soundscapes electronically to be able to make moods. I discovered that the same way that in a movie, you know, you can create moods sonically, we have created a natural sound masking for working spaces. Say our inspiration to do something better is the use of of white sound, uh, you know, white noise, peaked where conversation is in order to mask it, so to speak, going back to Disney's idea that you have a water feature in a theme park because that calms the place down as well as giving moisture. But we discovered that we can tune those notes and we mix natural sound with the, the shaped white noise dynamically. And so that can be used uh, in a workplace or in a museum and so forth or in a park to create mood. So, for example, we're doing a terrible museum in Lithuania that's at the site of a massacre. I mean, there are no Jews left in Lithuania and this is where they were all killed. And... Uh, and so when you come in there, this, it's a subliminal thing where we build up the terror until you finally get to the point where you're right where the trucks were when everybody was shot like fish in a, in a barrel. And so we can use tones like that. I, I would take you back to a moment in history which you maybe heard about, which is that the German Signal Corps used to keep 50-cycle hum on, an irritating hum during Hitler's great moments in large stadium. And as soon as the Fuhrer would speak, they'd turn the, cut, the hum off. So people would suddenly have a... I've never heard that. That is... They were good. <laughs> they were bad. So uh, I would love to work with you uh, on some things where my sonic skills and knowledge of history and um, shaping experience from my tool set and, and your tool set could be used together. So anything we can dream of, tiny or grand, I have the chops to <laughs> make it happen between myself and, um, and my associates. You know, I, we've always had a good time working together. It's funny because, you know, I'm, I'm actually producing an event now. I haven't produced an event in years and years and years. Uh, I got to have to do something in Bryant Park called War Without Walls, which is a big event bringing people together from many cultures, musicians from many places in a spirit of collaboration and cooperation as opposed to division and, and fear. Well, one thing is for sure, anyway. I, I'm tied up with my integrator who's got, who, who's located in Pasadena and in Brooklyn, who has, um, who can do any size events. He designed the studios at Juilliard. You got to meet him. He's a cool guy. His name is Willie Fastenow. He's in his 30s. 
and uh, he's the successor to everything I'm doing. And he's installed our, our stuff in hospitals. He's co-designing our stuff for planetariums. And he's really smart. He's a musician. He's a excellent businessman. And he's designed some stuff out in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, big halls. I think you, you would you would dig him. He's the reason I can live where I want to live, design ideas and, and all, all of that, because he, he's actually carrying carrying out all the work with all of his people everywhere, all over the world, so that I can be an idea man and a musician. Well, I'd you know, love to meet him. Love to see you and love to... You know, I, I enjoy our hanging out. You're one of the few people in my life that we've actually gotten to really hang out and, and jam now and again. And it's, been a, these have been moments... When I talk about place and time, I think there's something very special about shared time when, when you really are, are in it. Something completely unique happens. Yeah, yeah. You know, I have a very traditional perspective of time. You know, I'm not very interesting when it comes to, to that. But I think it is really true that you know, if you didn't have that, if I didn't have that very traditional perspective of time, that, that just notion of time being very elastic and different is, is underscored by the things of, of saying, okay, well, the experiences that we've had, those times are, they're larger, they're different than the passing of time that it passes every day. You know, the clock tick, 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 and then certain things happen. And they're really important. They take an emphasis. They, they, create, they create a memory. They create an understanding, whatever it is. Those times are different than, like, sort of like not all time is created equal. I don't know. I have a hard time expressing it because, of course, fucking my time is difficult. But, yeah. People that you can create special time with, you should, you should make sure that you do. It, it, you, you've done, done something wonderful uh, by bringing together all these energies in the two of your lives to produce this third character who is uh, just remarkable. Well, I hope, that, uh, I hope it continues that way. All right, bud, take care of yourself. We'll talk to you soon, all right? Okay, well, thank you, and uh, we'll stay in touch. Thanks. Right. Take care, Charles. You will. You will. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. This is Immerse, the podcast and book. We are delighted to have you join us. Immerse is produced by Charlie Morrow, Sean McCann, and Bart Plantenga for Morrow Sound, Vermont and Helsinki, and Recital Edition, Los Angeles. Immerse. Immerse. An empty shell fall back into the sea. Sound, light, space, 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 space.